Would you join me as we go before our God in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Would you read these words with me together if you have it opened or from up on the screen? This is our sermon lesson, Romans chapter 5. Together, let's read the first two verses. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The Apostle Paul jumps into Romans chapter 5 with with no introduction. He gets right into it. Therefore, I'm going to do the same. No intro. Here's the message. You ready? The message is this. In Christ, you have been justified. Justified means you have been declared something. By the judge of the world, by the creator of the universe, you have been declared in his sight right with him. You have been justified. There is a declaration of sinlessness, a declaration of perfection that you have in Christ. And the fact that you have been justified means something else. It means that you have peace. You have peace between God and you. There is no enmity. There is no hostility. There is only unity between you and God. And this just isn't some warm, feel-good feeling, but this is real. This is a fact. This is oneness, established, made, created, and placed between God and between you in Christ. And it gets even better. You not only have peace, but you have access. You have VIP access into the throne room of the Most High God where you are full of grace. You are standing in a place of peace and you are standing in a place of grace. The picture is of stepping into a room filled with God's love, filled with his hope, filled with his joy, filled with his mercy, filled with his purpose, filled with his confidence, filled with his power. In grace. Yes. To God. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Sounds pretty good, right? But so what? You have peace. You have justification. You have access to the Most High God. So what? What does it matter? What does it matter if you have all of these things, but you're not seeing any difference in your life? I mean, really, who cares if you have justification with God, if you have that declaration, if you have peace with him, if you have access to him, if it is not making a lick of difference in your daily life. So I want to get into this a little more, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you to answer that question. So what? You have peace. You have justification. You have access to God, but so what? Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to look on your sermon guide and write down three instances from this past week where having those things, having a declaration of peace between you and God, of access that you enjoy with God, made any difference in your life. Ready, set, go.
three, two, one. Time's up. How was that for you? Did you come up with three? Here's why I had you do that. Most Christians, I, I would even assume all Christians get that those things are good. God's justification, his declaration of peace and access to a place of grace is a good thing and it's supposed to make my life as a Christian better. All Christians know that those things do make our life eternally better. But I think most Christians, I think most Christians struggle with answering that, so what? How do those things make any difference in my life right now? Well, I think most Christians struggle to answer that so what question. I think it is especially difficult for Christian people, non-Christian people or anyone who is suffering with, with mental health illnesses or mood disorder. So what that I have, I mean, answer that question. So what? While you are dealing with anxiety. So what that I have peace? My life feels like it's in, in pieces because I'm anxious about everything. I'm anxious about my, my relationships. I'm anxious about my job. I'm anxious about the fact that not only am I a mess, my home's a mess. Try, try to answer that question. So what? When you're, you're dealing with real depression, whether it is clinically diagnosed or whether you are just feeling down. Try standing in a place of peace when you don't even feel like you can stand because your depression is that real, you can't get out of bed to stand up. Try to answer the so what question when you're dealing with an addiction, when you know that the very thing that you're doing is displeasing to God and yet you are supposed to be comforted by the fact that you have access to God and before God you feel nothing but guilt. Try dealing with that as, as any human being who recognizes the fact that I've messed up big time before God and now this idea that my faith, my declaration of justification is supposed to make my life better. You look at those passages, you look at this idea that it's supposed to make a difference in my life, Well, sometimes it just doesn't. And what we're left is, just like our hymn said, feeling in hopelessness and maybe near despair. You know, what makes it worse is that Christians are unintentionally, notoriously bad at answering the so what for other people. It's because we have really catchy sayings like, hey, God will take care of it. And that's supposed to inspire hope. We say things like, hey, it always works out. It always does. God has a plan. What? What's that based in? And we we come across passages like this. Passages that follow up exactly what you and I read together. Where the Apostle Paul says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. And this doesn't help, it hurts, because it, it makes me ashamed. It, it leaves me with a feeling of, of well, a sharp pain that the, the very thing which I thought was supposed to give me resource to be able to get through suffering, the very thing which I thought was supposed to allow me to boast in hope, isn't making me feel hopeful at all. It's not making me feel like my sufferings are something I can glory in one bit because there is no hope in my suffering. And so what we're going to do today is stop for a second. We're going to back it up and, and really understand the nature of hope. 
There is power. The fact is that the secular world, outside of Christianity or anything, recognizes that there is power in hope. That Here's some quotes. They came from uh, research papers in in the medical community from therapists, psychologists, and clinicians, and other people who have overcome mentalness saying this about hope. Hope underpins the recovery process of mental illness. Hope, the central talent in recovery, is hope. It is the catalyst for change and the enabler of the other factors involved in the recovery to take charge. Mental health recovery is an exercise in hope. Hope is indispensable to our recovery. There can be no recovery without hope. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk to everybody who maybe has struggled to answer that question, so what? And we're going to talk to especially those who are brave enough to admit, you know what, I have struggled so much with that so what, where I feel hopeless. Because the reality is hope does have power. But it's the right kind of hope that has power. So we're going to look at two things. First, the essence of hope, and then also how this hope functions in the life of Christians. In 1942, in September of that year, uh, there was a man by the name of Viktor Frankl, who was a renowned psychologist and therapist uh, who was taken into a concentration camp by German Nazis. During that time, uh, because of people who recognized him and knew uh, what he what he was on the outside of the camp, a lot of people came with him um, struggling, struggling with the present suffering that they were dealing with in the concentration camps. And, and Viktor Frankl wrote a, a memoir about his time in there called Man's Search for Meaning. And one of the things he reflected on in this book was a particular person in the camp. Everyone struggled to hold on to hope, but what happened to one man in particular who had hope and lost hope? There's a gentleman that he had come to know who had a dream. He he insisted that it was true. He insisted that it, it was a revelation from God, but he had a dream that on March 30th, World War II would end and all of them would be freed from their prison camps. The man's hope increased as this day got closer and closer. But then news reports came in and it was quite clear that World War II was not going to end on March 30th. On March 29th, this man couldn't take it anymore and he broke down and he, he developed a fever. On the 30th of March, he, he was crippled and incapable incapable of doing it because he couldn't get out. He was, he fell in, incompatible, incapable of doing anything. And on the 31st, he died. So what, what is hope supposed to do? Well, hope is powerful, and if hope is powerful, as as people say it is, it's it's like a power tool in the hand of a child when hope isn't used or hope isn't understood correctly. Viktor Frankl spent three and a half years in the prison camp, and when he got out, he was faced with the grim reality that of all the people that came into the camp with him, his parents, his pregnant wife, he was the only one to survive. And he, and he started to reflect on what made the difference between the surviving folks and, and 
how that could help him now in, in the life that he, he tried to look forward to. And he said this about hope. He said this. He said, hope cannot be pursued. It must ensue. One must have a reason to be hopeful. Now, don't get me wrong. Hope is something that always looks forward. Hope is something that always expects a better, brighter future. But what Viktor Frankl understood is that hope is not something that you can pursue, something that you can find, something that you can discover in your present circumstances. Hope is something that must ensue. It's something that must follow. It might, it must be something that is based on a past reality, a past reality that provides future hope in the present. Think about the man who had hope in something that wasn't really real, outside of a wish, outside of a dream that he had. This man had a hope, yes, certainly, but he had a hope that was cloud-based. And I don't mean that it was safely stored in an online place. I mean that it was based on a cloud. You can't stand on a cloud. It was, it was nothing more than a wish. It was, to be blunt, a lie. And as blunt as this sounds, I, I want you to note this, that pursuing or finding hope, you finding hope, that's a lie. A lot of the research and literature that I read uh, giving advice to people who are dealing with mood disorders or uh, mental health illness said, here's what you got to do. You have to find hope. You have to believe there's hope. You have to cling to hope. You have to get it at all costs because it's vital to your recovery. But how do you find it when you're hopeless? Here's a better truth. Choose a hope finding you. That is is a life, a hope that ensues, a hope that follows something and pursues you. That is a life. First Peter chapter 1 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about boasting in the hope of the glory of God. This is what Paul is talking about that gives him resource to boast and glory in the midst of struggles. I want to jump ahead. If you, if you have your device or your Bible open, I want to jump ahead to verse 6 and 8 through 8 of Romans chapter 5. This is what people often call the John 3.16 of Paul's letter to the Romans. He writes this, You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love. His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love that he's talking about is that, is that Greek word you're probably familiar with, agape, that one-way love. The love that found you when you ran. The love that came to you when and wanted you when you couldn't want it. That's the love that he's talking about. And he said that Christ is this love. Christ is the living hope. His resurrection is the cause for that. And Christ is our hope. Why? Because whatever will happen can't change what has happened. 
and that Christ is the past thing that has happened to make your present reality full of hope. Let me just touch on verses 9 through 11 real quick. Apostle Paul says this, he says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more then shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The essence of our hope is this. The essence of our hope is Christ's empty tomb. And the reason that Paul has confidence in this and he gives for the fact that this makes a logical sense is he says, let's look at this less than to greater than equation. The fact that while we were enemies with God, he made us right with him. If that gave us hope, how much more will we have hope that being made alive through him, we will also have life in him? What he does is he he bases our present reality, our present hope of future glory with God and the past thing of Christ. The essence of our hope is the fact that Christ has an empty tomb. But that emptiness means fullness, fullness of hope for us. So how does that function in our life? Let's take a look at Romans chapter 5 again. And I want you to look at the whole thing this time. Look at Romans chapter 5 and see in verse 1 and 2 what's happening. The Apostle Paul is talking about Jesus. Then we looked at verse 6 through 11. And there he's talking again about Jesus' resurrection, his empty tomb. The reality of something that happened in the past. That's why I like to call hope sandwich. Because you got the bread of life on the outside putting together the meat of what Paul's getting at in the middle, how this means something for you. Here's what he says, verse 2 and following. He says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the picture of what the Apostle Paul gives us for how hope functions in our life. This is the picture of the life cycle of a Christian. It's a cycle of hope. What he says is that the fact, he starts with the fact that you have hope. And he moves on. He says, yeah, you will have suffering. Things in this life, that's something we can agree with. You will suffer. That is inevitable. But it is also inevitable that you will not get through suffering without hope. And that produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character, still more hope. The illustration that I've read recently that really helps me make clear how it is that hope and suffering and suffering with hope gives me perseverance is is captured well in the story of of two men guy a and guy b let's call them both men worked at a widget signed a contract before they 
got going, guy A and guy B both signed a contract to work in a widget factory where they would put uh, nuts on bolts six days a week for 10 hours a time for an entire year. One guy, guy A, signed a contract that said, I'll do this for a year for a salary of $20,000. Guy B also signed a contract, but his was a little different. He signed a contract that said, I'll do the same work for the same year, and he signed it for $20 million. Two weeks into their work, two weeks into their labor, these guys met for the very first time in the break room, not knowing how much each one has signed their contract for. And guy A looks at guy B and said, I can't take it anymore. I'm going, I'm going mad sitting here all day long in these grueling conditions, just boringly putting nuts on bolts. Can't take it anymore. I think I'm going to quit. And guy B looks at him and says, really? I don't think it's that bad. What's the difference? Both had hope. Both had an expectation of future glory, but one person's hope, both based in a reality, one person's hope far exceeded the suffering that they were enduring. And you know that. So what? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. A living hope is a present hope. It's a present hope that looks back on a past thing that has been accomplished, that has been signed in blood and gives you resource. It gives you resource for persevering in anything, any circumstance, any suffering. You see, Jesus Christ and his gospel is not just your lottery ticket, your, your winning ticket to get into heaven. Jesus Christ and his gospel is also your winning ticket to get through anything in this life. And the Apostle Paul says hope in suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character. And I get that. I get that when you go through something with the hope of Jesus Christ, the result is perseverance. And I get that having perseverance as a Christian means that you have a a desirable character. But here's where I paused. As I was going through Romans chapter 5, here's what I didn't understand. How on earth character produces hope. I came upon this this quote from a Christian author I enjoy reading named Tullian Tervigian. He said this. He said, I used to think that growing as a Christian meant that I had to somehow go out and obtain the qualities and the attitudes that I was looking for. To really mature, I needed to find a way to get more joy, more patience, more faithfulness, and and so on. Then I came to the shattering realization that this isn't what the Bible teaches at all. And this isn't the gospel. What the Bible teaches is that as we mature, we come into a greater realization of what we already have in Christ. The gospel, in fact, transforms us precisely because it is not itself a message about our internal transformation, but about Christ's external substitution. We desperately need an advocate. We desperately need a friend. We also need a mediator. But what we need most is a substitute, someone who has done for us and secured for us that which we could have never secured for us in our past. 
he finishes saying this. He said, the hard work of Christian growth, therefore, of transformation, is to think less of ourselves and our performance and more of Christ Jesus and his performance for us. Ironically, when we focus mostly on our need to get better, we get worse. For the past five weeks, we've been talking in a series about transformed, about a transformation, about change happening in us. You want to know what the real tragedy of this series would be? It'd be if you walked away feeling, yeah, I'm, I'm someone who deals with anxiety, so, so what I need to do is pray more. First, the It'd be a tragedy if, if looking at this series, you, you heard about depression and the resource the gospel provides in it, and you said, you know what I need to do? Is I need to think less. I, need, I just need to think less of myself, and I need to think so much more of God. You know, I'm, I'm feeling addicted. You, I, I gotta do more godliness. I gotta do more things that God's gonna enjoy. It would be a tragedy if you walked away from this series feeling guilty. And you said to yourself, you know, I, I just got to go to church more. I got to serve more. I got to give more. Because the reality of your transformation is not based in your dedication to doing anything. The reality of your transformation is based in a substitution that already came in Christ. It would be a tragedy if you walked away from this series thinking that to bring about change, to bring about transformation in my life, I need to do more. Because here's the big idea of today, and here's the big idea of our entire series. The person whom you hope to become in Christ, you already are. The person you hope to become in Christ, you already are. Because his love transformed your past and made it your present. His love transformed your current reality by welding himself to you. And God's grace transforms your future because it points you to that which he has stored up for you in heaven. You see, Christ Jesus is not only the great eraser of our sins, but he is also the one who has stepped into that blank space and filled in, in that space, goodness and godliness. His goodness and godliness. It's a substitution that brought about your transformation of what you were to who you are now. You know, for the past five weeks, I've also been putting up pictures of butterflies on the screen behind me, um, our series logo, right? Now, some of you might uh, really enjoy catching butterflies, might really enjoy drawing butterflies. And I get some of you might think you're too cool or too macho to be associated with butterflies. But let me assure you, that's not true. You see, for over a thousand years, the Christian church has been using the symbol of the butterfly to illustrate resurrection, to illustrate life, to illustrate what Christ did going into the grave and rising to life for you. It illustrates Christ's resurrection, but it also illustrates you. It illustrates the fact that through your baptism, you have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer you who live, but it's Christ who lives in you. 
you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty popular book in the Rothy house right now. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a good one. Uh, it's called the very hungry caterpillar by Eric Carl and the illustration, the, the analogy of us being butterflies is a good one. Um, but like all analogies, it limps at just one point. You see the, the very hungry caterpillar had to do a lot to get ready to go through that transformation. If you recall, on Monday through Saturday, he had to eat quite a bit. And then it ends like this. He built a small house called a cocoon around himself. He stayed in it for some time, and then he nibbled a hole in the cocoon, and he came out. The reality is, though, we don't have to do anything to get ready to prepare for our transformation. Because the fact is that you have already been wrapped up in the cocoon of Christ. And now, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone. The new has come. One more thing struck me about the very hungry caterpillar. I was reading it this past week again. Um, you know, I get that. Um, people are more emotionally advanced, cognitively advanced, and there probably has something to do with instincts when it comes to caterpillars um, flying for the very first time. But could you imagine what it would be like to be a caterpillar who has to crawl all the time on the ground, who has to crawl through mud and muck and dirt and drag your belly along the ground, and then one day wake up and realize that you can fly above all of that? I think that must be what it's like for a Christian who wakes up and realizes the transformation, the hope that they have in Christ. Amen.